Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. All right. So glad to be back after a little bit of a break and hiatus. So you did, we haven't touched base as much as we normally do. And I know it's been kind of a challenge for me in the last few weeks with just the snow and the winter doldrums and the stress. Um, enough about me. How have you been doing these last few weeks? Yeah, it's been hard to even get the schedule. So I appreciate I'm just glad that we've finally have gotten this together. I appreciate your patience as I've been sort of pushing you back and back. It's been a little challenging here with snow days. And then, you know, somebody was sick and then that got passed around the household. And that, of course, impacts how everybody's sleeping. So, you know, the, the baby has not been sleeping well at all, which has, was already an issue before. And so I'm very tired. Um, and I don't mean to be like, you know, participating in like the busyness and tiredness Olympics, but it's a little bit of an issue at this point. It's starting to wear on me. And so hopefully I can, you know, think about that self-care that everybody always likes to talk about and make sure that I get the time that I get my snoozes in as I need them. Otherwise, you know, we're just chugging along. Finally, the snow's starting to melt. So hopefully we'll, you know, I think it's been like a month or something of no temperatures above freezing. So it's nice to finally see the sun out and see that it has enough strength to actually start melting some of that snow that has accumulated over the last couple of months. So that's where we're at. Um, anything else going on with you? What else, what else has been new? Yeah, I actually had something happen to me that I was going to talk to you about too, which is a new one for me. I had a chapter submitted. I've gone through the editing process and it just goes back to that idea that it's never really done. So I had made the suggested suggested round of changes, version one, version two. I got the note from the editor that this is like, this is a really good chapter. And I was like, yes, that felt so good. Like I've never, she's, I think she said really, really good. No, it's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so That's awesome. um, that happened a few months ago. And then I just got a note the other day from the editors that were like, well, we passed this on to the publishers and we need to do more of a sort of lit review feel. They didn't seem too pleased about it, but basically within each chapter, the editor suggested we add more of like a almost like bibliography type appeal, like see other writers on this and this. We thought it was kind of weird too. I had some notes in my chapter already, like, you know, so-and-so has written about this extensively. And so I didn't, I don't actually have a ton to do. It was just kind of a different note that I haven't received, which was basically like, they want us to add some more suggested readings down toward the bottom. And oh. then I guess the editors themselves of the collection have to do a little bit more of that conversation in between the chapter, like, oh, you might also see, you know, chapter nine, who, you know, where they also mention this subject or something like that. So that was a little new to me. I do want to encourage you. I remember those sleepless nights um, so well. Well, actually, I don't remember them because I just what I remember is being in a fog and it just seems like <laughs> yeah. unsurmountable at the time. 
because it's just like autopilot. I remember being at work and sometimes like I don't even know how I got there because I've gone to work with like maybe two or three hours of sleep and it just seems impossible and everything's fuzzy and just like feeling exhausted for maybe like 10 years straight for me, I think. And when I finally was done with nursing and all that, it's like this cloud lifts and I'm like, oh, myself again, this is what it's like. But I think I wrote you about this. The tricky thing with napping and setting bedtimes is it was always a catch-22 for me. I could put my child to bed early because I really like having a couple of hours to myself at night. Maybe it's when you do your puzzle or read or watch some trashy TV with your spouse. But I liked having a little bit of time from 9 until 11 just for me. But then what that meant was then the baby's waking up at like 5 or 6 or whatever. And so it was always, I never knew the right mix. But I want to encourage you. It does obviously end at some point in time, but I just, I I feel you. It's so hard. And I think the hours right now with Michigan and the lack of daylight, it compounds all that. Probably not getting the fresh air that I know you like so much. (laughs) That's a joke, but all the kids need the fresh air. They, you know, it's hard to get everyone sleeping and and yeah. Everything that I've, you know, I've, I've been trying to look up a little bit, like, you know, just get some ideas for like what I can change to maybe work this out a little bit better. And everything is basically like, make sure that the child goes outside and gets enough fresh air and exercise or not even exercise, but just like, um, stimulation outside so that they're tired at bedtime. And that's just kind of a struggle for me right now. So with, yeah, with the time, with the short days, with it being cold, with, you know, not really like we took her to the park the other day and I realized, you know, I'd never really taken her to the playground and, or only like maybe a couple times she's been to the playground just because it just hasn't really worked out that way. And then I remembered thinking back to when we were living in Maryland, I used to take my older two to the playground like every day. And so it was like kind of like a weird flashback. But yeah, she definitely does need to get outside more. And I agree with you on the, you know, the evening hours where I usually like to have like an eight o'clock bedtime so that I can have some time to myself. But at this point, it's just like falling asleep at 830 on the couch because there's not even any energy left and it's disheartening it's it's really something that frustrates me where I'm like I finally get to be like myself like you said and then there's just like no energy left to actually do that so but anyways um that's a disappointment (laughs) yeah not to start off on a too depressing foot I think we have um something a little more exciting going on Um, Right. Well, and I did want to mention, too, I know we have a lot of listeners in Texas, and here we are kind of like lamenting about the trials of being in the Michigan winter. And I just I think the snow and the weather is so overwhelming. And in spite of the fact that I have lived here for my entire life, I know what to expect. I have all the tools and tricks of the trade. I have the snow boots, the parka or the big coat, as they call it in Michigan. And all joking aside, I just wanted to wish our listeners in Texas well. I hope you're getting everything you need. My heart really goes out to all of you because I just can't imagine having that level of snow and cold weather and then not maybe necessarily um, having an infrastructure that supports that. So I've really been, everyone in Texas has been in my mind a lot lately because it's bad enough when it's cold and snowy and icy. I can't even imagine not having heat or water or anything like that because I know one of our former colleagues from uh, Wayne State is in Texas and he was you know, kind of joking, but not really. He was like grilling outside and then wrote about boiling water for a bath and someone didn't get it. He's like, well, I don't have hot water right now. So I'm using my gas stove to heat water for a bath. And I just thought I couldn't handle that. Um, We had that one winter here a few years ago, but I have a wood burning stove. So at least it kind of heated things up. So 
there is a lot going on, you did. And I don't think we are being negative. It's just the way of the world. But you are right. I think that we'll try to liven things up a little bit today and focus on a positive part of our lives, which is collaboration. And this was a suggestion from one of our listeners. So thank you so much for that. But we want to talk a little bit about the importance of collaboration in the field of academia and subsequently publishing as well, but how this is really important for female scholars in general. And you did, I mean, this podcast is essentially a collaboration between the two of us. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of think about a little bit, if you can, how has this podcast um, as a collaboration been beneficial to you, your work, how you're thinking about things? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a truly beneficial for me, especially on Well, I think most importantly, probably actually on a personal level, it's just been so great to have that time to spend with you and just to be able to say, hey, you know, just to put it in the schedule and to know that it's happening and to have it happen on a on a weekly basis. So the sort of uh, connection in the context of the pandemic when when everybody when it's so easy to feel isolated and disconnected from everybody else, that's been a huge factor for me. Um, but also as someone who is like more on the Altac track, if if that's the you know, if that's where we're placing me, I guess um, it's nice to ke- it's nice for me to keep talking about things that are happening in the academy and just sort of generally thinking about what other people are doing out there, what the other possibilities are with the degree that we have and the expertise that we have. And so, you know, and I and I think the the. The last thing that I'll mention is just that we've really made some really neat and cool connections with other people from other disciplines and other fields and people that I hadn't, you know, we met some new people through this whole um, endeavor. And so that's been really exciting to see. Um, I don't know. Did did I forget something? Do you have anything to add to that list? Well, right now, I think that this has been a really good touchstone for me to keep current on our field in general, especially relating to motherhood. I don't know if we plan on this being more of a feminist podcast, but it certainly is. And so that's been really exciting for me as well, because I don't really get to teach in gender and sexuality. And in fact, most of my teaching semester after semester is in composition. And certainly I can infuse some critical thinking that has to do with gender and female authors and things like that. But that's not really the focus of my work. Mostly I'm teaching our intro level composition courses, writing and things of that nature. So this, like you said, allows me to sort of keep current on the different veins of conversations that are occurring in feminist studies and for female scholars. And I think it's also inspired me to think about how many of our conversations could then be sort of used or maybe as a jumping off point for other types of scholarly work. I certainly think we have the makings of a full book here if we wanted to, but even um, with that in mind, I just saw a call for papers for uh, like the Maynooth University Motherhood Project, and this will be an online conference um, on motherhood and work um, in June. And so I'll post a link to that. But I was like, that would be perfect. I am certain there's something that we started thinking about here. And of course, we're trying to keep it conversational, but to actually give a conference presentation, I'm guessing I could easily sort of like look at all the different things we've talked about and thought about and maybe 
use that as the inspiration for a longer conference piece and then maybe use that conference piece to maybe springboard into a longer written essay or something like that. So I think that's really great. I do agree with you. It's awesome to meet people all around the country and even the world. I have to put this out here. I see that we have some listeners in Australia and then it's just like one of my places I've always dreamed of going. So I'm like, I would love to collaborate with someone in Australia because I just have always wanted to see Bondi Beach. It lives uh, strong in my imagination. I watch a lot of Australian TV shows and I'm like, I would love to go to Australia and also New Zealand. So I think to me, that seems really like one of the best parts of this is this gift of being able to converse across the country, but then also like the globe as well. I mean, I just think that's amazing. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, Yeah, I I was really. Yeah, go ahead. I was. Yeah, you sent me that uh, call for papers and I thought that was, it looked really cool. I just kind of glanced at it and I think, um, I don't, you know, it's something for me to still think about. But yeah, I certainly think that a lot of the work that we've done and a lot of the conversations that we've had here are, are you know, good starting points for something like that. And so there's a there's an interesting way here to where we're also like hearing from other people and and you and I hearing from each other and just sort of communication, communicating with each other about these things. I think there's a lot of um, interesting insight happening and that could certainly and, and, you know, conferences are always a great starting point for longer um, pieces. So it's interesting to use that prompt to sort of get yourself moving and then um, then take it from there. So I'm. I'm really curious to see what you come up with and I'm going to have to look at it again and see if I can't uh, cook something up too. But again, like I said, right now might not be the ideal point in time for me to, to tack on something else. Um, But I wanted to sort of think a little bit more about um, collaboration, why we think it's important and, um, sort of what the benefits of it are before we go into more detail about what some examples of collaboration are and how we can make it worth work. So let's talk a little bit first about um, what the advantages are, uh, generally why it's important, particularly in our field, and then look at some examples. What do you think? Well, I think right off the bat, you have been talking about this idea of supporting one another. And I think this is serving um, when we're collaborating, we are sort of supporting the work of other female scholars. We're supporting one another. But I love collaboration for that idea of counsel as well, that idea of sharing with someone that may have lived through the same experiences that you have as a scholar, as a writer, as an editor, etc. I think that's really important. And then there are some very logistical reasons that we like to collaborate. I mean, I have, in fact, the job I have, I received from you, so to speak. I remember you clearly. I think you could do this job. And you sent me that ad. I try to give back like that whenever I can with people I collaborate with. Like, you know, I saw this. I thought of you. I think this would be really awesome for you. Have you seen this call for papers? I think you'd be really good at this. Or in some cases, um, I saw this job ad. I don't need this right now. I am employed. But this might really work for you. And so I love that idea of kind of helping our colleagues and friends 
with finding employment, with this idea of like sharing our experiences. And I know we all have our own strengths too. And like, whereas maybe I am more confident doing a PowerPoint presentation, I don't know why that comes to mind. I can share my work with you and invite you to sort of help me and use your skills and strengths with like thinking about how I could tighten up the editing or something like that. And then I think we do share those um, invitations to uh, journal articles, but also like edited collections. And so if you have this um, strong group of people that you're collaborating with, it can help you with all of these different components of working in the academy. Did I did I forget anything there? Yeah, I, th- I like the way that you're phrasing that because it makes me think of the way that we can sort of complement each other, right? So like certain things that I know that you're always scouring calls for papers and whatnot. So, you know, it's helpful when you send those things my way because I might otherwise not see them. And then if you have something where, you know, maybe I can be of assistant, like that's a great way for me to sort of pay back or whatever, or contribute to, to your, or to help you out or whatever. And so I think there's a, there's an interesting arrangement there where we can, like you said, where we can help each other out. Another thing that I was thinking about when, when we first sort of discussed this as a possible topic was the idea of networking. I just think that networking is so important both in the academy and outside of it. To me, it's sort of like I've started thinking about it as like the holy grail of everything. Um, I think that for uh, an alt, if anybody out there is thinking about the Altec job market, I think networking there is absolutely key. Uh, and I think maybe for, for hiring even more so than in the academy, I'm not, I'm not sure that's just, you know, a guess, but I remember reading, uh, in the professor's in either on the blog or when the book first came out that she recommended that in addition to the two published articles that we were supposed to have on the CV and whatever else that, it's an important item to put on your CV to co-host a conference panel with somebody. With She suggested a top scholar in the field. Um, I think that that's, I don't know necessarily how realistic that is. I think some people are better at, than, at networking than others, and I think that's totally fine. But the But networking is key when it comes to, um, or, or something that looks stronger on your CV than other things is to be part of panels that are from mixed universities, right? So like if you're putting together a a panel with colleagues all from your university, that's great, but it looks even better if you're able to sort of um, network against, um, network across various universities. And so that's, that's one thing where I think collaboration can come in really handy. And sometimes that's really easy when you start doing that in grad school and then everybody goes to different universities then you already have the connections at different universities. And then if you continue your collaboration, it's um, really easy to sort of get that um, set up on your CV where, you know, you have, you have the panel that, that crosses these different universities, different institutions or whatever. So I think um, that's a, that's a really important key item that I came up with. I'm wondering a little bit, how gender plays into this argument. And you and I, we like to talk a lot about how gender plays into the different conversations that we're having. Do you think that collaboration and networking and those things is more important for female scholars or is it the same? What do you think? Well, I know personally, I really found it important to be able to collaborate with people that I identified with. And I did feel like a bit out of place when I first started graduate school because I was coming to the PhD program with three kids and a lot of our classmates at the time were not yet married. They, some of them were 
10 or more years younger than me. And so I didn't feel that sense of place and connection. Um, and it was fine, but I did feel like happy to find others that were beginning to navigate some of those same challenges that I was that included like trying to figure out childcare, nursing, traveling with kids. But it also made me feel like a valued member of the community when then my classmates did have their first child and I could maybe like share some of my own experiences with people like you and other colleagues that made me feel like an important part of the community rather than the oddball or someone that was kind of out of it. Um, And I do think it's important for mothers because we are connecting to a whole network of scholars. I loved when Jessica spoke about the mother scholar designation that we can in turn make literature and edited collections and journal articles and produce these kind of multifaceted works across the disciplines, right? Working with people who are outside of literary and cultural studies that maybe are coming from STEM or tech or other fields, sociology, whatever it happens to be, and producing work that's like really important to us, but also to everyone else out there that is going through these same kind of challenges. And that's what's been really cool about doing this podcast. It's kind of forced me out of my little bubble, so to speak. And I love when I'm seeing other people posting on Instagram that I never would have met or thought to follow from all over the world, different other scholars who are writing about so many of the same things that I'm grappling with right now. And so I do think for mothers in particular, we have talked about this and talked about this. And even the last time we did record a session, we talked about the challenges of mothering in this pandemic. And there are just so many, there were already so many to begin with. And it's like not shocking, I guess, that the pandemic has made these conditions for working mothers even more severe. And, you know, you and I are just two people, but our experiences seem to be echoed all over the place where I just, so many people I'm talking to right now, so many mothers working from home just feel burnt out. I don't want to use the term hopeless, but just like I've been in the same space now for a year looking at the same walls and feeling almost a sense of claustrophobia that's probably not unlike what uh, we read about in the yellow wallpaper, that famous canonical text where I just feel like the walls are closing in on me. And it's the same. It's the same thing. It's like a hundred years later. And I, you know, I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm just not quite myself. And I think that's okay to say, but even my husband was like, are you okay? I'm like, well, no, thanks for asking. Actually, I I don't think I am. (laughs) I mean, I said, you know, when you get to go out in the world a little bit, no matter how limited it is, it's still different than I sit at the same desk and I'm here all day, every day. Sometimes I go out to the grocery store, such a fun time. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, it's just, I'm almost scared to do anything beyond that at that point. I feel like I'm almost becoming, I don't, I don't want to throw any terms around, but I'm, I'm limited now because I feel almost nervous to do other things like go out for dinner. I just don't see the point or the value or like going to the mall. Why would I do that? Why would I risk people's health to like go buy some frivolous things? So at any rate, I think this idea of collaboration for us has always been important for feminist scholars but now more so than ever. So I I don't know if you're feeling that, but. um. Yeah, I agree that the isolation probably right now makes it, makes it a little bit harder. Uh, I think that's a huge factor for me just to, I don't need to necessarily go to restaurants either or whatever, but it's, it's hard to not have those connections and those, um, those conversations. And so I feel like, especially this podcast is a way to formalize that connection, right? And to make sure that we get that connection. So this collaboration really functions as something, and it's, you know, maybe it's a little, 
uh, maybe it's worth thinking about, you know, whether or not it needs to be such a formal arrangement or why it needs to be such a formal arrangement to make sure that we get those that we get to continue those conversations and those connections during this difficult time. But I certainly feel like this collaborative project has sort of carried me through some of these really difficult months because it has allowed that that sort of space outside of the the same four walls all the time and even if it's just sort of a virtual a virtual space but i agree with you just you know being inside the same place is difficult and it's hard sometimes to have somebody you know to to make that to make somebody and even the kids for me in my household are, you know, going to school and whatnot. And so sometimes it's difficult to to really translate it, that into other people's experiences. But I was I just that's so funny to me that you're bringing up the yellow wallpaper, because I remember just a couple days ago I was standing, I think, in one of the kids bedrooms and there was just, you know, some kind of noise that was really just getting to me. And I was just like, I really get the the yellow wallpaper gets an entirely new um meaning for me now. So anybody who hasn't read the yellow wallpaper, it's a short story by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. You need to check it out. Um, <laughs> so anyway, moving forward I or moving on, I think um, podcasts in general seem to really have um, exploded last year. So I think a lot of, especially mothers are seeking out the podcast to feel the sense of connection. I recently saw one of the podcasts that I listened to, they were publishing their download numbers and they their download numbers had like doubled over the course of the last year. And so I thought that was really interesting. And I've seen that in other places, too. I've seen that uh, observation pop up in other places, too, that there's been a huge increase in people listening to podcasts and especially mothers listening to podcasts and trying to sort of form these connections. And I think uh, in a positive manner, I know we like to dish on social media a lot, but I think that the Instagram and the way that a lot of these uh, podcasts have incorporated Instagram and other social media has been really um, helpful. And so I've actually enjoyed the experience of trying to sort of promote this podcast on Instagram a little bit because it has put me in touch with a lot of academics that are and a lot of academic parents that are talking about doing their research um, while parenting from home. And I do think that there is something very particular about doing academic research that's different from other jobs, from other working at home scenarios. And so that's been really interesting to me to follow along those other people's journeys, like you said earlier, and to just sort of feel like you're part of an entire community, even if it's just on Instagram or whatever. And I think that the vibe on Instagram is very specific and very different from what's going on on Twitter and Facebook or whatever. But in in any way, just the sort of connection that you can get from there and is really is really great. And I think that there's a way there to also turn that into other collaborations, right? So we've been talking about this podcast a lot as a form of collaboration, but those connections are it's equally possible to turn those connections into networking opportunities and turn them into collaborations, whether it's, you know, a joint discipline or something that's more interdisciplinary, as you've said before. And that can be, you know, engaging with each other's academic work. I've seen a lot of people working, um, posting pictures of their experiments and explaining what experiments they're doing or like other scholarly work that they're doing. So there's a way to engage with each other on that front, but there's also, you know, you, that can, you can take that further. You can do, you can use those opportunities to connect with people to maybe propose, um, 
conference panels or something if you're working in the same area or edited collections or other book projects or some something more transdisciplinary, as you've said earlier. So I think that's um, there's a lot of benefit to that and there are a lot of opportunities. And I think I'm already kind of transitioning a little bit into what some of the examples are. Erin, that was going to be my next question for you. So other than this podcast, I know that you've worked in a lot of different collaborative environments. Can you tell us a little bit more about some examples and do you have any takeaways? Like what has worked well for you and is there anything that hasn't worked so well for you in the past? So I did actually serve as a co-editor for an edited collection, and I have to say the timing was right on that. It was kind of coming at the tail end of my dissertation. I did have to work with some more established scholars because I didn't have the PhD yet. But what I took away personally from that was that I am actually a good writer and editor. And I mean, it was really actually a helpful collaboration with these other folks, because not only was it really interesting to see how other people outside of um, my in my field were looking at this object of study, because I was working with some people that were art historians and some people that studied film. And I'm sure this all, I mean, I realize these are all humanities based um, disciplines, but they're still different than what I do. Right. And so it was really neat to see that in some ways, my writing is actually quite clear and good. And I can edit other people's work. Like I felt a little nervous about that. Like, who am I to add notes to someone else's chapter? But it was actually really easy because, you know, I've been doing this for like a long time. And so that really boosted my self-confidence. It was really neat to see how other people approach the same kind of project. But like I said, I got a really good sense of pride and accomplishment. Like, wow, I can do this. And I did have good notes and I was making comments on this work that that was useful. And then that can always, you know, roll over into something else. Um, So with that first collaboration with the edited collection, somewhere down the road, I'm hoping to do something with one of the people I met that I worked really well with. And from that edited collection, um, I did get an invite to the MLA. And that was my very first MLA for people outside of our field. That is like the conference for our field. It wasn't a regional MLA. It was like the MLA. So if you've ever had to do an essay in MLA style, that's who it was. (laughs) My students got a kick out of that. They're like, wow, the MLA. Uh, But I got invited to serve on a conference panel there. And so that was like a real life collaboration. I went from like working as an editor with a person to Basically, I just got into the MLA as part of this panel discussion, which is kind of a nice workaround because the MLA, since it is kind of more one of our higher tier conferences, it can be harder to get into that one. So that was really neat. And like I said, from that, um, I've been invited to do some other work. And then I just uh, served in, okay, long story, but we're talking about collaboration. We had a teacher at Wayne State and the teacher, the professor at Wayne State taught us about writing book reviews. And so I went kind of nuts and wrote like five or six book reviews after that. And so then she in turn invited me one of her classes to talk about writing book reviews because she's like, Erin, you're like so accomplished in this. And I was like, that's really cool. Wow. What an honor to come to your class. So in that class, I met two people. I friended them on Facebook, which always makes me a little bit nervous because I'm like, I met them once, but we're friends on Facebook. And I feel like we have this like really good rapport on Facebook because we like a lot of the same things. And so then earlier this fall, one of the people um, was hosting a roundtable 
panel discussion, if you want to call it, on using pop culture to teach. And she invited me to join that conversation. And then I met this other really great person from Bowling Green University. And I'm like, wow, that would be a really good person to tap for like maybe being a co-editor on this edited collection I supposedly want to come up with. And so that is a long-winded way of showing like the different sort of like paths that this collaboration can take. It was like working with a professor, then meeting her students. Her students in a few years are putting together their own things. So I think that's really the nature of academia. And then in the future, who knows? I mean, maybe one of those people ends up working at a really great college and they find out there's an opening for, I don't know, someone just like me. I don't know. It just happens right. that way. So um, I thought I was just thinking about that um, as you asked me that question. I know you've done some pretty good collaborative work in the past as well. I think because in some cases I was kind of there with you while this was going on. But for our listeners, I know you've kind of had this collaborative approach in the past, especially with um, conferencing and things like that. So do you want to share some of those experiences? Yeah, I think... The networking part, again, is really important at conferences. And the, you know, the what you're describing is already sort of somebody's putting together a panel and they think of you and, you know, they invite you or something. So you're already sort of like at an advanced stage of this collaboration because you've already made the connection and you've already sort of um provided evidence for your expertise and that's why you're being invited to contribute to this. I think that, you know, for anybody who's just sort of hitting the job market or starting to hit like the conference circuit or whatever, uh, it's important to keep in mind that, and and it doesn't always work out this way because not e- not every conference is equally good at putting together panels that make sense together. But usually, you know, in an ideal scenario, your conference paper will be matched with something or someone who's working on at least a related topic. So I've had a lot of conference panels where there wasn't really a conversation going on and the papers were a little bit mismatched or the audience really zones in on one particular presentation and there's not really a conversation between the panelists. But if there is, you know, I think it's really important and I'm just sort of, I would probably tell myself this more so than anybody else, but there's an opportunity there to connect with people that are working in the same area that you're working in that are interested in the same types of questions and that do work that's related to your work. And so, you know, it's, I think it's important to make connection with people that you are in conference panels with. I've done in the past, I have sort of drawn on that in my own work uh, now as an editor, where I have reached out to people that I had previously as a grad student been on conference panels with, if I saw their names in programs that I was now attending as an acquisitions editor. And I've had some success with that where I have inspired, you know, I, I just set up, you know, I just set up an appointment, I just reached out and said, Hey, remember, we were in the panel together, you know, do you want to get together talk about what you're working on now. And so that led to, you know, a larger project that the person that I met with then actually collaborated with other people on that was an edited collection, where she then sort of um, <clears throat> could, uh, collaborated with with other people that she maybe knew from I don't know how that worked out, because I'm not sure if she um collaborate with other people that she knew from somewhere else or whatever. But there's sort of this, these, I think what's important about these collaborative 
engagements is that they are these sort of long chain things like you were describing, right? Where like one connection leads to another and one collaborative project leads to another. Um, another thing that I was thinking about was just the way that, so when we were in grad school, as you were saying earlier, you were really a helpful person to go to when I first had my first daughter, because I just really didn't know what was coming my way. But then there were a bunch of other um, moms that were a bunch of other grad students that were also having kids at the same time. And we ended up starting this sort of, it was almost like a support group. Um, I don't remember what we called it, but it, you know, we started a group where we would just like meet with our kids on a monthly basis, um, just to sort of have an opportunity to talk about how things were going, what we were working on, because we were all working in literary and cultural studies. The kids were all sort of roughly the same age. And so it was nice to be able to get together and really, again, like we were saying earlier, uh, find support, but also complement each other in certain ways, right? So, you know, we put together this organization, we brainstormed ideas, we put together, we had different levels, uh, different areas of expertise that we were able to put together. Um, and, you know, I don't, we ended up inviting somebody that we had met at another conference to our school to give a talk about some of her work that she had recently published because it was also related to being a mother in the academy. And so there are just all kinds of opportunities, I feel like, where it's been so fun to work together with others to come up with these ideas and then to de develop ways about or to develop the ways to make those ideas happen with fundraising and, you know, inviting other scholars and just sort of reaching out. And I think the biggest part is always to have that initial courage. The, the biggest challenge is always to have that initial courage. Like you were saying about Facebook, I think it can be really intimidating to make those first connections, but the, but I have never, you know, encountered anybody, anybody who wasn't flattered when you reached out to them and said, Hey, your work's really interesting and I'm working in the same field or whatever. And so that's, I think an important thing to keep in mind that usually people appreciate when their work is recognized and, and to meet other people that are also interested in similar questions. Right on. I love all that. And you know, what I remember about that parenting support group we had was that you did, you invited this awesome writer, mother, and we had met her somewhere else. And we were really, I remember I bought her book and everything. And then one of my kids was sick. And so I couldn't go. And I just remember that. Oh, I, I just I saw those emails. That. I was like, I'm really sorry. Someone's got a fever and I can't make it. So that was like a little interesting side note there. I love this idea of working together and bringing the ideas together. Do you think, I mean, what are some challenges with this? Because coming from this writing background, are there any sort of caveats or potential challenges that people might want to be on the lookout? You might meet someone who's fabulous. You have a great time having coffee or whatever. We're going to pretend it's, you know, 2017 and you met somewhere in Louisville and you had a great conversation and then you're at the Brown Hotel having drinks or whatever. Um, but then it comes down to the brass tacks of writing. Are there any potential challenges sometimes if we're talking about collaboration? So I can throw out a story from a long, long time ago where I tried to write a paper with a fellow student in the class and he was a good friend and we got along really well and we had like similar ideas about like what the paper should be and what direction the paper should take. But we had completely different writing styles. Like it was just such a clash where my writing style is a little bit like I like to think ahead about what I'm going to write. But then I do a lot of 
writing a sentence and reading it back to myself and being like, no, that's not what I mean. And then trying another sentence and reading it back and just kind of inching my way closer to what I actually mean and letting my language sort of like tell me what my thoughts actually are. And his writing style was more like everything had to like come out right at the first try. And so he basically, it was a situation where like I wouldn't let him finish a thought and he wouldn't let me get a sentence on the page to see it. And so it was just like pulling teeth. It wasn't something that like ruined our connection or anything like that, but it was a very difficult scenario. So I think I just remember it as this like really challenging. Um, I just remember sitting in front of the computer with him and just being so frustrated um, about the whole process. So I think something like that can be difficult and can be challenging. And it's important to probably address some of those potential challenges ahead of time and be clear about how you want to distribute the work and and things like that. And I think we probably all know that from uh, group work and things in school. I was never I was never particularly great at group work either. I preferred to just sort of do things my own way. So maybe, you know, I was the probably the bigger problem in the situation. Um, I'll <laughs> I'll admit it. But yeah, those are some things I think to to keep in mind. Can you uh, remember any troubles like that that you've had in the past? So we've thrown that word perfectionist around a bit here and there about myself. And because back a long time ago, I came from a deadline-oriented industry, which is journalism and running a magazine and staying on a publication schedule, probably not unlike what you do, I take deadlines very seriously. And I was horrified they're not listening. They're probably not. But when I was working on that edited collection with these three other editors, like no one seemed to be have any sense of urgency. And I felt like I was just like, okay, so we were supposed to have all the edits done. How or where is everyone at? And I felt like because of this, I ended up taking over a lot of it. I didn't mean to. And finally, it was just myself and the one other person that I probably would work with again. He and I were like, okay, look, just you take the six chapters and I'll take the six chapters. This is the only way this is going to get done. But it was just, I, I was a little surprised. I think this goes back to like people being overcommitted, you know, and maybe just having too much to do. But I was a little shocked because I felt like, you know, a lot of people think I'm laid back and easygoing and I am, but I'm just like, I, I was working I was working with you and I didn't want to let you down and I didn't want to be this like, you know, problem. And I'm like, this needs to be on time. We said it was going to be on such and such a date and like, what is going on folks? Like, and so that was kind of something that in hindsight, I'd go back and make really sort of clear rules and figure out who was doing what, or you know what, did we need the two extra people as editors? It could have been, you know, we, there was all that, but it was like, honestly, it was myself and the other person that did almost all of it. And so I felt like, you know, maybe this is just a thing to get your name on a book as an editor without having to do a lot of work. And I'm not trying to like disrespect anyone or be rude. It just, it maybe because I was a newbie and kind of naive, I was just like doing everything. And there was a matter of, I have so many great ideas about how this would happen, but a lot of people did not have the chapters in the right format and they were in APA or MLA and it has to be Chicago. And that work is just so time consuming and draining. And there were some writers that were just like, well, I asked them to rewrite it and they just didn't do it. And so then what are you going to do? Just not do it or do it on your own. And that's, I think, a risk for people that maybe do have tendencies to be a little bit more of a perfectionist. 
like you're saying with the group work, I think a lot of us fell into that trap where we're just like, the group is not doing as well as we'd like. So you know what, we'll just do it all by ourselves. And (laughs) I think that kind of is not the spirit of collaboration that we're talking about today. And so I think it is really important to talk to someone about their working style, their writing style, how do they plan things out? Um, I think that all is like probably a great conversation to have before words go on page or something like that. Even this, you know, I think you're really good at like trying to keep us on track with like a schedule and spreadsheets and things like that. And we have to talk about it and figure it out before you can't just, you know, go live. I guess you could, but I don't know if it would be that meaningful. So, um, that's, that's a lot of good information about maybe how to set things up. Um, what else are we thinking about today? Well, I think the other question that is kind of pressing now that we're really not traveling and we're not going to conferences and we don't have the option of, you know, attending receptions and having a glass of wine with all of these other people and putting ourselves out there. How can we network now? What are some ways that we might, you know, be able to collaborate? Do you have any ideas on that? Well, social media. And I am doing a lot more online conferencing this year. I am curious to see because... We did attend that smaller local or regional conference early in the fall, and there was probably a potential for networking there. But I'll be curious to see how some of the larger conferences go for networking. I do want to say, just with Facebook and trying to think about this podcast and look for ideas, I have found two really good groups, and one of them we already knew about anyway, IAMAS, um, and I'll put the link to that. That's on the um, that's through the Detmer Press as well, or affiliated with that, and Andrea O'Reilly. And so that's a really great um, Facebook page. I love kind of going on there. They post a lot of like topical issues, current event issues relating to women and female scholars and working mothers. And so I'm always like, oh, that's interesting. And there was just actually a call for papers there, which I need to send you because I really think you'd be awesome at. I know you're exhausted, but I I was just (laughs) like, I have to send this to you because I know you could write an essay about this. Um, And then like there's another one called PhD Mamas on Facebook. And it says, you know, this group was born out of necessity with the goal of supporting mothers and academia. Um, This came through a session at the North Central Sociological Association meeting in 2015. It's a safe private space. What I really like what they did there is they enabled an anonymous feature so you can like make a post anonymously. And why I like that is because there's certain issues I might want to talk about uh, regarding children or spouses. I only have one spouse, but um, online without them seeing it, right? Seeing that I wrote this, like I'm really struggling with this A, B, C, or D. So you can kind of put an anonymous query up there, like, you know, um, I'm dealing with this with my 13-year-old daughter, and then the 13-year-old daughter won't see it. It won't be tagged. Erin Bell says she's having issues with her 13-year-old daughter. So um, those, I think, would be potential sites to collaborate, to meet people. Just the other day, it was kind of funny, and I was not trying to be um, promoting the podcast or anything, but someone had written a little post about she got her first rejection, and she was feeling really down about it. And so I was just like, well, it's funny that you say that, because we literally just recorded an episode episode on that. I hope maybe you'll find some solace or comfort, but you know, I know it really, I I know it really stings. I don't think it will ever not kind of hurt with that rejection, no matter how many years you've been in the industry or the field. But I thought that was kind of cool. And I see that potential as well. So 
as much as social media can be problematic, I think right now that is the current go-to spot for us to, to collaborate, to meet new people. But you did, I agree. I sometimes feel it is a little intimidating or awkward, just kind of like jump in and make an introduction. But like you said, I think most people are excited. I think we're all feeling these same uh, feelings of isolation or disconnection. And I don't know anyone, if you give them a compliment about anything, that are usually like, you know, not receptive, especially <laughs> yeah. scholars. Go like, come away. on, <laughs> let me tell you more about my work, please. So right. Um, right. I think that's really, I think those uh, places have been really interesting for me to check out. And I will post links to all the uh, sites and the Instagram, things like that, that we've talked about today. So. We haven't talked about our reading or watching or media. Are you reading or watching anything good right now? Or like you said, you're just kind of quick, quick off to sleep as soon as you can. How's it going over there? Yeah, it's it's a little I'm a little um, weak on that front. I have been continuing to read the book that I talked about recently, Girl, Woman, Other. I kind of I think I misrepresented that a little bit. I would probably have to re-listen to what I said about that, you know, a while ago. It's it's taken me a long time to get through. It's a long book. Um, it's it's feeling a little less like Mrs. Dalloway now. I think that's the reference that I made. But it's a really good read. I understand why it won awards and I'm excited to pass it on to you once I'm done. But it'll be a while. I'm reading like five to ten pages at a time and not on a daily basis. So It'll be a while for me to get through. How about you? Have you been reading anything, watching yeah. anything? Yeah, I finished The Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich. And I'm kind of a reader where or when I really like an author, I have a tendency to just go through the whole catalog and read everything. So I finished um, more her recent novel, The Night Watchman. That's a newer release. And so then I jumped back into the Master Butcher Singing Club, which I said <laughs> had a little bit of a connection to you. And I, I always kind of laugh when people are describing German culture, but you know, the one of the protagonists is from Germany and he's a butcher and they're describing all these sausages. And I just had warm, fu fuzzy memories of going to Berlin and getting my curry first and I'm being like, it's not that spicy. I thought curry was going to be, sp anyway. Um, so that's been enjoyable. Oh, yeah. uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, which there is a lot of buzz right now. So probably some of our, at least some of our listeners have uh, checked this out. There is a new film on Hulu right now called Nomad Land, and it stars Frances McDormand. She is actually one of my favorite authors, authors, actresses, actors, I should say. Uh, Frances McDormand, one of my favorite actors who's been in a lot of really great art films uh, since I've been in my 20s. But it's an interesting film because it is based on a nonfiction book called No Man Land, Surviving America in the 21st Century. And I feel like both of our partners, our spouses probably would appreciate this. But this, uh, the nonfiction book is actually kind of um, written by Jessica Bruder. She went out and started to study this van culture. And this all kind of is happening right after the major global economic crisis. And so it's really interesting because you get the sense that some people are choosing this van lifestyle because that's all they can afford. But a lot of them there are there by choice. They want to live off the grid. They don't want to be tied down and tethered to the mortgage and the real estate taxes. And so this grants them a certain type of autonomy where they can kind of move, almost be like migrants for the 21st century. And of course, my husband thinks it sounds great. You know, you just go and, and fix up a van or a camper and you're kind of off on your own. The interesting part about the film. So the film is drawing from this nonfiction book where Bruder went out and interviewed all these people. So the film is 
you know, a fictional film. It's got beautiful cinematography showing some of these places like Arizona um, as just absolutely sublime. That's the part where I was like, I could deal with that. But then the main character is a fictional person who has to take off after her job um, is lost. Her whole hometown is basically decimated and becomes a ghost town almost literally overnight. It's like called Empire, Nevada, and that place is actually real. And they pro- process sheetrock there. I don't know if any of this is ringing a bell. So the the town becomes a ghost town and she's forced to like basically be homeless and things like that. Um, you find out throughout the film that maybe that's not all there is to her story, but she's fictional. But then she is meeting real life people who are, quote, playing themselves in the film. Right. So all the people that Bruder, the nonfiction author, went out and interviewed and met on the road are actually playing a version of themselves in the movie. Um, so you have a lot of people who are not legit actors. And when I was watching it, I didn't know this about it. because I'm like, wow, this, some of these actors seem like really like I'm kind of impressed. Like they really look like they're sort of wizened and wrote. They don't look like Hollywood actors. Well, they're not. They're playing a version of themselves. And so it's kind of interesting. It doesn't come across as campy or anything like that. It is, I would say, uniquely sad in a way that sort of mourns for this like lost American dream. But at the same time, there is that mythos of like being on the road, the freedom of the road, being untethered by the rules and regulations of society. And then there is a part of me where like some of these uh, van setups they have are quite you know, costly. Like you can't, this isn't the same as being homeless because to outfit the van that takes a certain amount of money. Um, some of them do in the film and I obviously in the book find seasonal work doing different like odd jobs, um, working at museums and things like that. But I watched that. I thought it was interesting. It was interesting to sort of consider that with everything that's happening now, but also to kind of backtrack and think about, you know, how that global economic crisis did impact so many people. And most of the folks in the film are older. They're like 60 and 70 years old. So they're at a weird time and space where like they were let go from their jobs, but it's like pre um, retirement age. So they're kind of in this weird limbo. So they just say, to hell with it. Let's just go out on the road. So there's a little bit of that Jack Kerouac there, I think. You know, they probably read on the road when they were teenagers and are like hearkening back to those days. But the thing that I can't get around you to, not to be crass, is, you know, the, oh, I don't want to bring it up because you said this is all that, you know, your kids talk about, but the potty time. You have to have a bucket in your van. And that's the thing that I think would prevent me from being able to live that lifestyle. Can't do it. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think that that would work for me either. It's funny that you bring this up because, in keeping with the theme of the episode um, or the conversations that we've been having around this episode, my husband and I actually started watching the movie a couple of days ago, and within like five or ten minutes, my daughter woke up and started calling for me. So I went to bed, and he watched the movie. Um, so I have not watched the rest of it. It looked, you know, interesting, and I really like. Frances McDormand too. I've enjoyed a lot of the work that she's been in. So I would have liked to see it. I probably won't watch it by myself, but it's, my husband said it was depressing, which I think is the intent. So, um, it, it might, it might work for me, but, um, yeah, I, you know, and I, and I, I think what, when I was sort of looking or when I was listening to you describe it, the, the thing that came up to me was, or the the thing that popped into my head was that I had previously sort of heard this or encountered this idea of like the nomad lifestyle in a much more sort of romanticized way where 
people are traveling and they have their home on wheels or whatever and they're free and they just sort of you know drive where where work is needed or whatever and that that there's quite a few people out there that are sort of leading that lifestyle but in a much more glamorized way than the way that it's described here so uh it would be interesting to to watch that movie maybe i will at some point we recently watched um hillbilly also on hulu and i can't probably give as much of a thoughtful overview of that movie as you've just done with this one but it's um it's by a documentary filmmaker who grew up in rural Kentucky and went to school in a large city in Kentucky and then went out to LA and became a filmmaker. And she was sort of like going back to interviewing some other people that sort of felt like they weren't represented in this like usual hillbilly stereotype. And that was kind of, and she had some interesting conversations. I guess I'm not, my thoughts on the movie aren't fully fleshed out yet, but that was an interesting one too, that um, you might like to watch. We watched hillbilly elegy recently. So I think maybe that's why Hulu pointed it out to us. You know how those things work. But uh, this one is definitely uh, more of a documentary, and it it was it had some interesting perspectives. But I'm not sure that I'm convinced that she set out to prove what she was trying to prove. Bell Hooks is in it though, who apparently grew up in rural Kentucky, so she was sort of talking from her vantage point, which was really exciting for me to see. So, so it's an interesting. Um, it's definitely a worthwhile um, documentary to watch. I thought. Um, and we watched the Britney Spears documentary too. So apparently we're like on a, on a documentary trip. That's a, that's, that was a good one too. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, that was really, that was really kind of interesting and shocking and not shocking all at the same time. So I'll have to check that one out. I was (laughs) vaguely intrigued by that just because the Britney Spears, I don't know. She's still, she's still, people still know who she is. And there's always those questions of like feminism versus sexism and men controlling her life and everything like that. And that's what the documentary is about. Mm. So that's really, that that was really like, I was never like a huge Britney Spears fan, but I was really interested in this question about, you know, like, how is it possible that she doesn't have control over her own finances and her own decision-making? And apparently she kind of fell off the grid a little bit too. So people are trying to, to bring her back with that documentary. I guess. I don't know. Um, Well, I'll have to check that one out. In the meantime, if any of our listeners have any good suggestions for documentary films or anything else, or you're interested in possibly collaborating with us, I would love to hear from you. Judith would love to hear from you as well. It's been a minute, but where can they find us on the social media? Yeah, we're on Instagram at PhD in Parenting, and you can also send us an email at PhD in Parenting Podcast at gmail.com. As always, we'd also encourage you to leave a review or a rating on your um, favorite podcast app. Those are helpful as well. And um, thank you again for sending us your suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love uh, your inspiration. And um, we just kind of really enjoy having the sense of having a conversation with everyone out there listening. So keep them coming. We always enjoy receiving them. So thank you so much for listening this week again. And we look forward to coming back with a new episode to you soon. Indeed, the collaboration continues. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time. 